With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From my laboratory in the castle east to the master bedroom where the night gods feast. They did the geek. They did the Bible geek. They did the geek. This geek is meant for you, too. Okay, it's getting close to Halloween. Haven't done a geek in a while. I've finally got enough to do a decent one. Uh, so this is your fault now, not mine. Uh, got to get a decent uh, barrel full, or a bucket full, should I say, uh, before I can uh, rustle up a decent geek. And I do have it now. So what say we take a look? Let's dip in or dive in or slide in or whatever. This is a bit of a plug for... Uh, a uh it's from Todd Thyberg. It's it's a plug for his project, The Miskatonic Papers, an experiential letterpress printed book. So I'm just gonna read what he sent me. Are you a fan of horror, expeditionary adventures from the days of old, or the tactile sensation of letterpress printed goods? Then have I got a book for you? This one live on Kickstarter right now is Angel Bomb's largest and most ambitious project to date. It reached full funding in only 10 days. The Miskatonic Papers is an experiential book. You don't just read it. You explore and experience the mystery, assembling it from various pieces. It's like breaking open a time capsule and then trying to figure out what happened over 100 years ago. Composed of 50 printed pieces, including letters, telegrams, drawings, newspaper clippings, broadside, um, let's see, burned letters of found stationery, and a journal which is written by hand and printed by letterpress. All of these items, letterpress printed, hand-stamped, aged, and weathered, comprise this Stygian work of unnameable horrors. You'll even receive a cast resin fragment of the artifact that lies at the heart of the story, painted, aged, and imbued with evil. This is my fourth book, inspired by early 20th century author and creator of cosmic horror, H.P. Lovecraft. Growing up reading Lovecraft stories, I fell in love with his dark horror and esoteric language, his creepy New England settings and monsters from beyond the furthest reaches of space and time inspired this young teenager eager for an escape from his small North Dakota town. Reading was my refuge, and these stories took me to creepily haunted places that stirred my imagination. I wanted to create something that honors this part of my childhood. I always hoped to find something old and mysterious in my grandmom's attic or an old abandoned building, something I would take home and sift through trying to piece together a mystery. Who wouldn't want to come across such an item? Movies are made about such tales. Uh, I might add sometimes real bad ones like The NeverEnding Story. But I'm sorry. Uh, um, this book is that object. I need everyone's help to reach my Kickstarter goal and make the Miskatonic Papers a reality. There are rewards at various contribution levels for the serious collector and regular fan alike. If you'd like to read more about it, visit my website, angelbomb, all one word, dot com slash books. Or to see more images from the process, follow at the underscore miskatonic underscore papers on instagram thanks todd i uh, this says <laughs> with most lovecraft geek items is a bit old since i got them uh, a long time ago but uh, check it out anyhow
All right. Horace Smith says the following. Toward the end of his life, Lovecraft seemed to be becoming more interested again in his youthful enthusiasm, astronomy. I think that he was contemplating revising some of his early newspaper articles on the subject. Do you think that Lovecraft might have returned to straight science writing had he lived longer? Of course, who knows, but uh, of course you know that no one knows. I'm not telling you anything you didn't know, but it seems unlikely to me. Uh, he he was still so devoted to the weird. I, I think he would have kept going. I mean, he might have done some kind of uh, essay on the side, but I, I doubt if he would have been doing it, uh, if he would have been taking up much time with that when there were weird tales to be written. Of course, who knows with HPL, right? Because his uh, epistolary writing uh, far outweighs his fiction writing or poetry and uh, something some pretend to uh, rejoice at. Uh, of course, it's good to have all the stuff that he wrote, all the uh, nonfiction, the essays, the letters, but uh, I have to admit I would not be interested in any of that if it weren't for the fiction and poetry. But what the heck, it's... I guess it's moot since he's famously dead. Okay. Um, this from Hilario Pena. Dear Dr. Whateley, I'm Juan Romero from Tlaxcala, Mexico. My favorite Lovecraft tale is the case of Charles Dexter Ward with The Hunter of the Dark in Close Second. As you can see, I love my horror written from the third-person point of view. First question, given your love for both the Bible and stories with the El Diablo as a character in the plot, what do you think of the Master and the Margarita? <clears throat> well, what I'm thinking is that I have it upstairs, I think, but have never read it. I, I hear it's real interesting, though, for similar reasons uh, that you suggest. Uh, someday, maybe I'll get around to it. Uh, second, do you think a story can have a strong dose of humor in it and still be Lovecraftian? I ask this because to me the existential pessimism and the haunting atmospheres uh, are so uh, much a part of the old gents' literature as the giant squids and the forbidden books. Uh, yes, uh, I do think so, because of the fact that with that pessimism comes the notion that humanity itself is a joke, right? I mean, even in At the Mountains of Madness, it turns out that uh, the old ones, the star-headed old ones, had created humans as uh, a mistake or a joke, and uh, Ed Babinski, a terrific writer, an old friend of mine, said that uh, he's not so much concerned with the fall of man as with the pratfall of man. And I think that uh, there is a very thin line between the uh, the humbling depiction of human origins and significance in Lovecraft and uh, the, the notion of... Uh, uh, jokes and, and uh, ironic humor. There's a little bit of that here and there. I think um, it, it more easily fits into the uh, more extravagant revision tales, like the whole idea in the horror in the museum of uh, the guy having hunted down and bagged some of the old ones that Cthulhu is there uh, in suspended animation somehow like in uh, Mystery in the Wax Museum. Uh, he's on display there uh, and with, with uh, Ron Tagoth and uh, the others. I mean, that's really a joke. And uh, the um, uh, Winged Death, which is going to come up in, a, in another question in a moment, that's certainly... Uh, so ridiculous. I think it's got to be on purpose. I can't imagine Lovecraft really took all that seriously. The idea of this guy, uh, his mind being trapped in a fly's body, help me, um, would, would allow for him to 
dive bomb the keys on the typewriter to type out the account we're reading. I mean, that's that's intentionally funny, it seems to me. Uh, other things, I don't know. They're funny, but he might not have thought so. Like, uh, again, another revision, the diary of Alonzo Typer, which I love. Uh, I got to admit, though, it's kind of ridiculous at the end where uh, he says, black paws materialize, uh, dragging me to the cellar. What the heck? Are you writing this on the floor? I mean, isn't it a little late? Uh, well, uh, it's pretty funny, and I can't help thinking he so intended it. And I guess there are um, there are some other ones, too. Uh, um, but I think there could be more. And I, I like to invoke uh, the great uh, universal horror movies, especially the sublime Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, where somehow they hermetically seal off the seriousness of the depiction of Count Dracula and the Frankenstein monster and the wolfman uh, with the uh, equally segregated uh, slapstick silliness of Abbott and Costello. It's amazing. Uh, and, I mean, the, the, uh, the eerie horror stuff works as if there were no uh, simultaneously running uh, comedy show. And I think you could do that. But in, in The Invisible Man and various others, there's an element of comedy. In The Bride of Frankenstein, where uh, Una O'Connor is like the human chicken, uh, she uh, has been warning everybody about the monster and how he didn't perish in the fire. And suddenly she looks around and he's standing right there. I mean, which one is is more of a monster, I don't know, but it's funny. And I think he could have done it uh, more and more overtly. It's just a question of could he have kept it out of the way from uh, the, the truly horrific parts. And one last thing about that, the humor could easily be part of the uh, whole typical Lovecraft approach of lulling the reader into a false sense of security and normalcy, uh, just like Pickman's paintings did. Uh, but um, uh, then, whammo, uh, it's setting you up for the the terrible and uh, unexpected uh, horrific revelation. I think you could have done that. Anyway, um, let's see. Uh, last but not least, I want to share with you a description of the City of the Immortals by Jorge Luis Borges that reminds me a lot of Rillier. It abounded in dead-end corridors, high unattainable windows, portentous doors which led to a cell or pit, incredible inverted stairways whose steps and balustrades hung downwards, other stairways clinging airily to the side of a monumental wall would die without leading anywhere after making two or three turns in the lofty darkness of the cupolas. And that's all. Keep it weird. Uh, there is a 90s vampire novel with pretty much the same uh, gimmick. The Golden Something or Other. I can't remember what it is offhand. But that's... Uh, and, and there's a scene in uh, Time Bandits when they get to the uh, the castle of uh, uh, the, uh, the evil genius. It kind of looks that way. Only if that one's made of Lego blocks. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a picture of the universe as Lovecraft thought of it, right? It's going nowhere. For all its beauty and complexity, it's all a dead end. Okay, David Perlmutter has passed on a Reddit question, and I uh, did a little research to answer this one. From what I understand, H.P. Lovecraft's grandfather was very wealthy and even a prominent member of Parliament. He also credited, uh, sorry, created lots of scientific works along with literary works. He was clearly intellectual, and that should have earned him good money. 
Yet, despite all this, he died of malnutrition because he couldn't afford the. I what is this? You're talking about his grandfather or Lovecraft? I uh, died of malnutrition because he couldn't afford the basic necessities of life. Can someone explain why he was so poor, even with such a high volume of works, his intellect and family wealth? Also, how meritorious was he as a scientist? Was the quality of his science poor that made him earn less? Well, here's a quote my unquote answer. This is actually just taken right out of uh, Wikipedia uh, entry. Uh, it says uh, Susie, you know, Susie. Lovecraft, Susie's family was of substantial means at the time of their marriage. Her father, Whipple Van Buren Phillips, being involved in many significant business ventures. By 1900, Whipple's various business concerns, was one of them Charmin toilet paper? I don't know, uh, were suffering a downturn and slowly reducing his family's wealth. He was forced to let the family's hired servants go, leaving Lovecraft, Whipple, and Susie, being the only unmarried sister, alone in the family home. In the spring of 1904, Whipple's largest business venture suffered a catastrophic failure. Within months, he died due to a stroke at age 70. After Whipple's death, Susie was unable to support the upkeep of the expansive family home on what remained of the Phillips' estate. Later that year, she was forced to move herself and her son to a small duplex. Okay, uh, that's thus saith uh, Wikipedia. Uh, there's, I don't see anything about him being a scientist or a uh, writer or a member of parliament. Um, you might be, your source might be confusing him with somebody else, or maybe my source is unreliable. But yeah, um, this explains the poverty, right? Uh, Whipple Phillips was a... Uh, uh, apparently well-to-do, well-off, wealthy uh, um, businessman, but uh, when that sunk, it sank, should I say, uh, it, uh, it sort of dried up the bucks and Lovecraft inherited poverty. Okay, continuing with, no, I guess... No, okay, that, that's, uh, that's all I've got on, on that one. Thanks, Dave, for sending it on. This next one is from La Salamander. Uh, he says, I'm contemplating writing a dramatic staged musical ad adaptation of The Call of Cthulhu, which, for lack of a better word, let's call an opera, though I doubt what I have in mind would fit most people's idea of what an opera sounds like. Uh, by the way, let me just break in and say, as I recall which doesn't mean much, in Joe Pulver's great novel, Nightmare's Disciple, he mentions an operatic version of The Call of Cthulhu, but uh, there's really nothing um, beyond that mentioned about it. Anyhow, um, he, he says, I'm just now starting to think about how such an adaptation might work, and one of the first things I'd like to think about is the notion of literary themes. Rather than focusing on a play-by-play -play of the plot, and since the quasi-epistolary nature of the novel is more suited to being read than acted out on stage, I really want to dive into the heart of the story. So my question to you is, what would you hope to get out of such a version of The Call of Cthulhu? What aspects of the story do you think most ought to be explored, especially ones that might be well done, uh, might be done well through music or songs, such as an opera? Well, uh, I uh, think the main theme is this forbidden knowledge, which is nonetheless discovered with a horrifying, depressing, and dispiriting results, if there's some way of conveying that. But also, I think um, there are three places in the story 
uh, the uh, one being the swamp orgy uh, in in the bayou, uh, another being the Eskimo Diabolist meeting, and the third being the uh, brief mention of the ship or the canoe or whatever it is of the uh, islanders, and uh, who apparently were worshippers of uh, the great old one. I think you could have, uh, I know this is kind of reminiscent of King Kong, but it seems to me you could do a pretty interesting thing with uh, choral music with uh, rhythms that uh, that in, evoke uh, a sense of primitive religion uh, and possibly savagery. I think that could be hybridized. And I was, I was just watching part of um, The Final Conflict, the Third Omen movie today, and the use there made of haunting choral music in a frightening way, I guess, may, may have inspired this thought. Uh, let's see. And then when Rillier is described, I don't know how you're going to do that, though. I'm guessing you would have some kind of Escher-like uh, stage set in two dimensions and a curtain would rise upon it and there would be some kind of also sprach Zarathustra music uh, just like they used in uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey and maybe also some sort of churchy organ music to indicate the uh, the theological significance of this to the followers of Cthulhu and the, the majesty and imposing character of it, along with some kind of, you know, strange uh, insanity music uh, in the background. And uh, uh, so, you know, this is just you know, a few stabs in the dark. Back to... Uh, Back to La Salamander. Is there anything about this story in particular that you think many people seem to miss? With all your years of thinking about Lovecraft's work and pretty much nothing else, um, I'm hoping to teach a little of your boundless wisdom in this area in the name of celebrating the horror of HPL's most famous work. Uh, well, uh, two things occur to me, and and I'm sure they they have been uh, discussed, but uh, I'm sort of left with uh, being a bit mystified. You know, uh, a big deal is made of the fact that the stars are right, and Great Cthulhu, after all all this time, is free and ravening with joy. Uh, but then he goes back in and the island sinks. W wait a minute, was this a, a momentous fulfillment of prophecy or not? And if it isn't, if it wasn't a fulfillment, a glorious fulfillment um, of a second coming of Cthulhu, well, what the heck is it? Uh, did he just have a furlough or something? Uh, I mean, it seems like it should be end, uh, leading up to the end of mankind. And uh, Robert Block kind of takes that approach in strange eons. Uh, and so that's uh, the anticlimactic character of the uh, end of the story, uh, to me, seems to undermine what's gone before. All this anticipation and pretty much nothing uh, that I mean, uh, Lovecraft said that in connection with the Dunwich Horror, the reason it ends as it does is you can't really convey the apocalyptic uh, world-ending character of the anticipated events. Well, then why anticipate them? Uh, it, it's just a big disappointment. Uh, and uh, the, I think uh, this uh, Call of Cthulhu has done that too. It leads us up to this thing and said, well, it's <laughs> just kidding. Uh, and another one that strikes me as pretty strange and uh, requiring explanation, we've discovered that George Gamel Angel, the narrator's, uh, what's his name? Thurston, I think, not the one on uh, Gilligan's Island. Unless, of course, Gilligan's Island was real yay. I never thought of that. But anyhow, um, uh, why did uh, he 
write down all of this stuff, uh, the correlation of the contents that has ruined life for, for him. Uh, it's pretty obvious he doesn't think anything could be done about it uh, and uh, that his uh, life is probably soon to be over. Well, why is he spreading this bad news? Uh, what's the point? Well, of course, the point is uh, to write the story. But you'd think there would have to be some narrative motivation. Why would he lock this in a box for somebody to find uh, and repeat the same uh, horror uh, and uh, within the story? I, it may be, maybe it's addressed and I've forgotten it, but that's not my impression. See, another paragraph. Also, while I believe all of Lovecraft's stories are now in the public domain, there seems to be some controversy on the usability of the title, The Call of Cthulhu, due to Chaosium's claim on the title for their role-playing game. I'm not sure this is really your area of expertise, but I'm wondering if you'd know anything about that. Yeah, I, I don't know legal technicalities, but I would have to say I just cannot imagine that they would have control over this. It's not like you're making a, a different role-playing game and calling it the Call of Cthulhu. Uh, so I, I cannot imagine you'd have any problem with that. Oh, and ending. Uh, oh, and my favorite Lovecraft story is The Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath. And if my Call of Cthulhu opera is any success, hopefully that'll be the basis of its sequel. Nefandously yours, La Salamander. Yeah, interesting stuff. I love all this Lovecraftian creativity. Uh, let's see, here's one from Brian Madigan in Syracuse, New York. So I've had an interest in Lovecraft. Oh, he says, your erudite sliminess. There's a salutation. I've had an interest in Lovecraft for over 40 years, but I never settled down to read more than a few of the stories. Reading the Lancer Conan books led me to Lovecraft. Uh, me too, I think. Yeah, that was oh, the good old days, in my case, uh, in the late 60s. Now, I'm a collector of comics, books, movies, and music, but mostly comics. I have a rather large comics collection, the bulk of which I acquired by following the number one rule of comic collecting. After you read a comic, don't throw it out. Or don't let your mother throw it out. I am one of those completists who must have every issue. It's an illness. I was also one of the continuity freaks who liked to have all those pieces fit together. I'll bet I could do a half-decent job um, of harmonizing the Gospels if I put my mind to it. Well, people have tried. Back when there were only ten Marvel titles, I would list all the comics issues in parallel columns on graph paper, and then... Uh, used color-coded colored pencils to draw timelines for each character. Uh, for instance, a red line would represent the Human Torch, and it had to jump back and forth between Fantastic Four and Strange Tales, occasionally straying into Spider-Man. Now, let me just pause here in case you don't catch that. Of course, the Torch was a member of the Fantastic Four and still is, but at that time, he had his own uh, strip in Strange Tales, and the rest would be, uh, you know, their Strange Tales had begun as a, an anthology book with um, somewhat tame but beautifully drawn science fiction and horror stories. But eventually, um, uh, the Torch was joined by The Thing, uh, and uh, the two of them had various adventures. I always enjoyed them. Uh, okay, and then uh, uh, the torch would occasionally appear in Spider-Man, uh, like I think in number three, where he'd been so badly beaten by Dr. Octopus, he said, I guess I'm not cut out for this, forget it. But then he heard a kind of a motivational speech in his high school given by Johnny Storm, the torch. And this made him think, what am I doing? I, I can beat this guy. I got to go try again anyway. And he does. And he, uh, he thanks the torch, who doesn't know what he's talking about, and goes off and beats the stuffing out of 
Doc Ock. So anyway, yeah. So uh, now what came before what else? Well, you would uh, try to place it in the right place. I mean, I can think of a huge chart of synoptic relationships, which uh, would look a lot like your your chart. Uh, by the time I was done, it looked, looked a lot like a New York subway map, although more complex. I quickly learned that I cared more about the continuity than the writers did and gave up on my futile project. Yeah, now forget it. Oh, boy, I don't envy anybody that tries to do that with the uh, X-Men movies. Man, they threw continuity to the wind very early on. Um, anyway, what does this have to do with HPL? It's the fact that I love a cohesive universe where stories interact with each other. Of course, I later learned that the Cthulhu mythos didn't work quite so neatly, but I still want to read all the related stories, whether they be by Derleth, Carter, Block, or Price? Sure. Anyway, uh, E. Hoffman Price, of course. Uh, back in the 60s, there was a group of paperbacks edited by Derleth and Carter that purported to be the entire mythos, but they're long out of print. I'm I'm not really sure that is correct. Uh, uh, Derleth did choose the stories for the Arkham House book, later reprinted in paragraph in paperback, um, Tales of the Cthulhu Mythos. But that was admittedly a selection from a larger bunch of stories. And when I did for Fedogan and Bremer back in 1990, I think. Um, Tales of the Lovecraft Mythos, it was a, a, a tribute to that great volume, which I loved so much, and I picked, it was sort of an alternate selection of what could as well have been in uh, Tales of the Cthulhu Mythos, uh, more of the goodies. Um, Lynn Carter started a series of uh, books that would kind of trace the historical development of this or that item in the mythos. Hastur, the unspeakable, or the the Migo, or whatever, and um, I think it was called the first, and it turned out only one was called the Spawn of Cthulhu, and I, of course, you know, he died too young, and I continued that series for Chaosium in the the Cthulhu Cycle books, uh, so I did a beefed up version of the Spawn of Cthulhu, though mine was called the Hastur Cycle, and uh, Lynn had done a similar, well, a collection of Robert Bloch's um, Lovecraftian stories, Mysteries of the Worm for Zebra books, and so I added some block stories and a new introduction to that, and then did several more, the Cthulhu cycle, the Dunwich cycle, the um, Innsmouth cycle, and so forth. And that doesn't give you a, uh, a kind of a timeline of the mythos, either its publication or its internal uh, timeline, but there, there, you can... Tr uh, there's an, uh, enough to do a good job tracing this. Uh, let's see. Um, he goes on to say, I'm looking for your recommendation on how to accomplish my goal of reading the entire mythos in the proper chronological order. I already have the following books. One, The Complete Works of H.P. Lovecraft, put out by CthulhuChick.com. That's a new one to me. Uh, it has all the Lovecraft solo stories in publication order, from The Tomb to The Haunter of the Dark. And two, The Cthulhu Mythos Mega Pack, 40 classic and modern Lovecraftian stories, edited by John Gregory Betancourt. Uh, John is my friend and uh, co-owner of um, uh, the of uh, Lynn Carter Enterprises. Okay, um, uh, and Colin Azariah Cribs. It includes a story called "Down in Limbo" by one Robert M. Price, and yes, uh, guilty as charged. This collection begins with "At the Mountains of Madness," which automatically puts the stories out of publication order. So, have the editors of this book really put these into a chron uh, into a logical chronology? Yeah, I don't have either of these editions. Your thoughts are appreciated. Oh, great one. Um, now, I would suggest, in terms of the internal chronology of the mythos in Lovecraft himself, you might look up my uh, article in 
Crypt of Cthulhu, uh, Lovecraft's Cosmic History. I had read a, um, a fanzine article by somebody that insists that Lovecraft's stories all do observe a, a consistent timeline, and I thought that is simply not true. And so I wrote this as a friendly rejoinder, saying, let's take a look here. You know, what's the relation of the Cthulhu spawn and the Migo and all that? Well, this it's this way in this story, but that way in another one. You cannot harmonize them, and there's a good reason for it. I uh, can't really tell you where that appears, but Necronomicon Press has virtually all the back issues available electronically. I don't know if they have an article index or not, but I know there are sites. If you look up Cryptic Cthulhu, it will tell you what's in every issue. And uh, you can find it, Lovecraft's Cosmic History. And uh, as for the publication chronology of the whole darn mythos. That's something I uh, once thought of doing, but gave it up as a fool's errand if the fool involved was me. However, the much more ambitious um, Tim Burrell, B-U-R-E-L-L, is uh, working on a massive project that will do just that, where he... Um, in in connected discourse, it's not just a list. Uh, he um, is uh, saying, okay, this came before this. Once this came along, we had a new grimoire added, a new old one, and it'll appear again here. So as far as I know, and from what I've read of it, it's exactly what you're looking for. I don't think it's anywhere really near publication, but you would certainly hear about it in Crypt of Cthulhu and, uh, and here. Uh, oh, did I? yeah, Brian Madigan, Syracuse, right? Oh, yeah, he says, P.S. In a recent Bible geek, you mentioned Ras al Ghul as being created by Neil Adams. Uh, not to take away from the great Neil Adams, he only drew the comics that introduced Ras. The writer was Denny O'Neill. Yeah, okay, sorry about that. Uh, yeah, thank you for the correction. I appreciate that. Somehow, I don't care for that character. Boy, did they uh, grossly miscast and misuse him on the CW series Arrow. Uh, anyway, um, but I don't really like him anyhow. Uh, another one, uh, let me just get the name, Jack uh, Ferverda from the frozen wastes of Saskatchewan, Canada. Gee, uh, let's see, uh, greetings from the world of crawling, creepy creatures that are invading the neighborhood and will soon be at our door. Dear indestructible geek, I tell my doctor that. I was wondering if you're familiar with the works of Robert Block. I came upon the name while watching one of my favorite old black and white movies, eh? It brought me to Lovecraft because according to information in one of Bloch's books, in the 1930s, Lovecraft encouraged him to start writing short stories. It turns out his abilities brought him some fame and he had many short stories published. He became so famous that one of his stories grabbed the attention of the legendary filmmaker Alfred Hitchcock. The book was called Psycho and the rest is history. Just think, Mr. Geek, if it weren't for... Uh, Lovecraft, Hollywood would never have produced that iconic shower scene, and I wouldn't be washing myself in a scuba suit diving outfit every morning. Um, anyway, I know Lovecraft also, you know, by the way, uh, Block said, uh, people told me that after seeing it, they were afraid to take a shower, and I've always been glad I didn't have Norman kill her as she was sitting on the toilet. Well, watch out what you say, because in Psycho 3, exactly that happens. Anyway, um... Yeah, um, anyway, I know Lovecraft also had a friendship with Robert E. Howard of Conan fame. Were there any other writers he influenced? Are you familiar with Robert Block? Please share your thoughts on some of this. Yeah, I uh, had the great privilege of uh, corresponding with uh, the great Robert Block and uh, met him once. I mean, there, there are other people that had uh, more uh, 
intimate, friendly contact with him, like the late, great Willem Pugmire. Uh, but I uh, was just very thrilled. Uh, um, he learned the hobby of listening to his fans and replying to them from Lovecraft because of what you just said, that uh, he waxed bold to write to Lovecraft, having read his stuff in Weird Tales, and Lovecraft took him under his wing. And uh, he wrote loads of these stories. I, I love his early stories, I think even more than his later work, though please understand I am not saying there's anything wrong with his later work. I just sort of like the raw uh, mythos element of his useful and youthful enthusiasm. But I absolutely love Psycho and uh, Psycho 2 and, and other ones. Um but uh, he was Lovecraft was also a huge influence on his buddy Frank Belknap Long, also younger man. Uh, he uh, influenced Robert E. Howard to write some mythos-oriented uh, uh, stories, for instance, um, "The Thing on the Roof." And uh, oh, several other ones that I collected in my Chaosium anthology, Nameless Cults. And uh, even in his novel, which was like a Sax Romer pastiche, Skullface, Skullface was his version of Fu Manchu, we learned that uh, there is somehow a link or an identity between Skullface, actually uh, named Cthulhu's, and uh, Lovecraft's Cthulhu. And uh, uh, let's see, when, when Howard wrote The Dark... No, wait a minute. Gee, I forget. The, the first uh, Bran McMorn story, it was Lovecraft who persuaded him to make it into a series. Should have been longer, a longer series, but oh boy, those are great. He was a big influence on Dwayne Rimmel, who had stories published and was a working writer for decades thereafter. And Richard F. Seawright. And, or, or, I'm sorry, I guess it was... Yeah, I think that's right, yeah. And, uh, oh boy, a whole mess of other ones. Henry Cutner, Block put Cutner in touch with Lovecraft. And so, yeah, he had a huge influence, and I love the the work by all those Weird Tales guys. Uh, he had a big influence on Clark Ashton Smith, though Smith was his own man, really, and wrote uh, a different sort of fantasy and horror. But uh, I, I think that I just finished reading a book I've reviewed for Crypt of Cthulhu called Weird Tales of Modernity, uh, which is a study of Lovecraft, Smith, and Howard as opponents of the literary modernism represented by Virginia Woolf, James Joyce, um, Edmund Wilson, uh, Ernest Hemingway, and uh, various other ones. Uh, and uh, it uh, the, the three of them go together. They're often called the three musketeers of weird tales. And I speak of the world that the worlds they created as the weird tales cosmology. Not only are there occasional cross references, but uh, even when it's not so explicit, they neatly lock into one another. Uh, I love that stuff. Major influence on me. Uh, yeah, so there's some, some thoughts. And, uh, okay, uh, uh, now, uh, a question just to, uh, um, demonstrate my, uh, ignorance here. Uh, now who's, yeah, I, I am not sure I have the... Oh, boy, I am sorry. I think I've lost the name of the questioner here. But he says, I'm curious as to whether you've read The Weird of Hali, H-A-L-I, by John Michael Greer, book one, Innsmouth, and book two, Kingsport. The two books weave historical occultism and the HPL mythos into a uh, casual contemporary fantasy. The writings are punctuated by some of J. M. Greer's ecosophy and Wiccan-slash-Druidic views, as he binds the mythos to magic, with a C.K., and alchemy. 
This effort removes much of the trademark horror and suspense I've come to know from HPLs and other mythos authors' writings, explaining away that which cannot be described through descriptive prose detailing magic and mindfulness. Mind you, I have enjoyed the books, and they spurred me on to some casual research of Wicca, the Rosicrucians, and Theosophy. But for me, nothing replaces H.P.L., R.E. Howard, or C.A. Smith for vivid, visceral tales of horror and madness with so rich a sensation of time and locale. Amen, brother. What are your thoughts on authors weaving the mythos into a larger continuity of real or imagined philosophies and religions in a historical context? I think it's uh, it's chancy in Auguster Leth's uh, mythos stories. He tended to incorporate the cult of the old ones into actual Polynesian religion, and you can see why Cthulhu is uh, you know part of Polynesian lore of well no I don't want to say that it's a Polynesian phenomenon in the call of Cthulhu but it seems like nobody knows about it that is not in the cult until much later it turns out and that's the point of the story. But I thought that kind of diluted the mythos, especially when Lovecraft, oh, I'm sorry, when Derleth sort of tried to merge it with Christianity and the myths of the fall of Satan and all that. Uh, when others do the same thing, uh, I, I don't care for the result on the whole, but I phrase it that way because I know this is subjective and somebody with enough imagination can make it work. I mean, they don't all have to be exactly what Lovecraft would have written had he thought of it, right? Um, uh, let's see. Oh, and then, then uh, he goes on to say, uh, beyond John Michael Greer, do you know of any other writers who have leveraged HPL's mythos to illuminate other religions, philosophies, or types of fiction? Well, I think of Colin Wilson in The Mind Parasites and The Philosopher's Stone. He does a good job uh, putting it into a somewhat different uh, parallel context. And it's, it's very well done and powerful. And uh, C.J. Henderson, a friend of mine, now gone, sadly, uh, he was, I think, the uh, pioneer of uh, mythos hard-boiled detective fiction, which you would think, you know, come on, that's, uh, you, you can't really mix those. Yeah, wait till you read his stories of uh, Teddy London and Jack Hagee and other hard-boiled, two-fisted private eyes. And uh, the mythos, uh, he really did a heck of a job and has a lot of fans whom he deserves. Joe Pulver did one that has that element in it strongly, but is indescribable in its, its stylistic and conceptual range. Uh, you've got to read Nightmare's Disciple. This was before he uh, began to get into surrealism, uh, and, uh, and he did great work there too, but if you're not into that, you certainly must read uh, the more conventional but still mind-blowing Nightmare's Disciple. Uh, there's also Cody Goodfellow, and I'm sure there's loads more I'm just blanking on, but uh, Cody has put together genuine mythos horror and stepped it up a notch or two or three uh, with... Um, techno thrillers and again that might seem ridiculous but believe me it is not uh, his short stories are great too but i'm thinking primarily of the two-parter which is just too big to be published in one volume um, the first one is called radiant dawn and the follow-up is called ravenous dusk and uh, they are just so terrific i continually uh annoy Cody by uh, pestering him to write a third um, uh, rampaging doom, but he says he doesn't see how it could be continued. It's kind of definitive, definitive in its end, but I told him I beg to differ. I can see how you could keep it up. Maybe one day he'll heed my wisdom and do it.
Uh, but uh, okay. Uh, this from Lester Ness in Kunming, China. Yithian One, have you come across Japanese cartoon movies on Lovecraftian themes like Mysteries of the Necronomicon? Um, I know of such, but have never seen any of them. I know there's a lot of them. Uh, I, don't, I can't say whether they're good or bad or whatever, but that one sure sounds good. Uh, the idea of Lovecraft in Japan is somewhat amusing. Clark Ashton Smith daydreamed about moving to China or Japan. What about HPL? I don't know if he ever mentions that in his voluminous letters. I'm uh, shamefully ignorant of most of them. Interesting, uh, interesting question. Um, S.T. Joshi would no doubt know exactly what he said and where. And let's see, what do we have here? Mark Wetherill. So I've only recently begun listening to the Lovecraft Geek podcast. As an avid reader and re-reader of Lovecraft, I'm finding your insights and views fascinating. Thank you. One, my ears pricked up wouldn't that be perked up? Anyway, in episode eight, you mentioned Winged Death, one of my favorites, and the humorous idea of the CC fly dive-bombing the keys of a typewriter to punch out the long narrative. Surely not, I thought. Uh, of course, this is the, the question I was referring to earlier. Uh, in the story, Slough White finds himself in the body of the fly only at the very end and resorts to making ink tracks on the ceiling as his only means of expression. Um, uh, two, the case of Charles Dexter Ward is another favorite. Something struck me recently that I can't reconcile. Maybe you can shed some light. After Charles resurrects Kerwin, it is discovered that the painting has crumbled to, uh, to, oh, to a, th a thin coating of fine bluish gray dust echoed at the right at the end of, right at the end of the story dr willett has uh previously had an odd fancy about the portrait and charles finds something of positive humor in its sudden crumbling this must mean that it plays a part in things although the portrait although it seems to me that the calling up of Kerwin could well take place without it Charles has the remains. The text implies that he reduces them to salts, with an E, and then calls Kerwin up from them. So I wonder if Kerwin is supposed to be somehow embodied in the painting or inhabiting it until his resurrection. I can't really escape that inference, too, though, as you say, it kind of seems redundant. I mean, he didn't have a picture haunted by... Uh, he uses that, by the way, in the, the uh, strange fate of... No, not that, the... Uh, oh, what the heck is it? I just... The Diary of Alonzo Typer, where the pictures of the uh, Vanderhale family in the, their mansion seem to have an insidious life in them. But uh, it doesn't seem like he would need it. He didn't have uh, pictures of the various other people he called up from the essential salts. Uh, so I, I don't know how you can iron that out. And it seems like it would be a contrivance to, to come up with something. I mean, it's hard to imagine Lovecraft would have had it in mind. Uh, I'm guessing he just uh, had a special... He needs the portrait for another purpose in the story to, to establish that... Uh, that Kerwin is a descendant of, I'm sorry, that sheesh, uh, Kerwin is an ancestor of uh, uh, Ward, and uh, to, to prepare you for what's going on, because Kerwin cannot pull off his impersonation switcheroo unless he's uh, switching with an identical twin, and uh, but still, you know, you wouldn't need the. Uh, the uh, sort of voodoo thing where the um, where Kerwin dies and the picture of him is crumbling. So I think they're two good images that then he didn't want to give up either one of them. He could have 
dropped either one and the story would still make sense. If anybody else has a good theory about that, I welcome it. Uh, Mark sent another one. Um, I've heard you discuss a narrative discrepancy in the shadow over Innsmouth, the narrator's clear horror and loathing of Innsmouth and the Deep Ones, against the fact that by the end of the tale, he's pretty much rejoicing in becoming a Deep One himself. I have never seen this as a problem. It's only in the final two paragraphs that the narrator's view changes, and it's quite a drastic shift. I think it's intentional. Those two paragraphs are, to me, like a postscript to the main story written after the narrator does indeed change his mind and accept his fate. I mean, he does pretty much say that. I'm sure this is very deliberate by Lovecraft and more subtle than if he'd set it up like a journal. Uh, luckily, the narrator is, by the end, not quite himself, so it doesn't occur to him to go back and revise the whole story. What do you think? Well, I'd feel that is quite plausible. It does make sense, but I... Uh, I, I still find it troubling that there's no note saying after writ, uh, writing the above, there have been developments. I've broken my cousin out of the uh, loony bin and all that. That would seal the deal, but even then you would have to wonder why the heck he didn't crumple up the beginning of it. It's like in The Call of Cthulhu again. Would, as he now is, would he want, knowing what he knows and being what he is, would he want to call attention to, to uh, what Innsmouth really is, resulting in the destruction of the place? I still see a bit of a problem, though uh, you, your explanation is the best I've heard. Um, let's see... Uh, okay, this is from Magnus. Greetings from Norway, O Critic. I'm kind of a podcast junkie, and yours are among my absolute favorites. The Bible geek and the human Bible make me realize that the Bible is a genuinely interesting book, and the Lovecraft geek introduced me to both H.P. and Robert E. Howard. For this, I am very grateful. I'm mighty glad to hear that. I only hope you might consider making the Robert E. Howard Geek podcast as well, or just a podcast about anything related to weird tales in general. My favorite Lovecraft story is The Shadow Over Innsmouth. The reason is that I have an affinity for evil cults, manhunts, and small backwoods towns with unfriendly locals. Um... Yeah, see, uh, my question today is related to Lovecraft's friendship with Robert E. Howard. Uh, however, uh, well, it was not a however, it was Howard leftover. I have not um, yet had the chance to read their correspondence with each other myself, but based on the, the little I have read of Howard and the stories I've heard about them, they seem to be two very different kinds of people. Um, could you elaborate a bit on their relationship? Who contacted whom first? What did they talk about? What was their common ground? For how long did they correspond and so on? Uh, it was a few years. Uh, Howard wrote Lovecraft because uh, he noticed at the end of The Rats in the Walls, Lovecraft has uh, Delapore lapse into ancestral memory and he begins to, I could have this slightly wrong, uh, he says something in Simric, which he, um, yeah, I think that's right. And uh, it's a line he cribbed from the Sin Eater by uh, uh, Fiona McLeod, uh, which you can find, I'm sure, in a number of places, but it'll be in my um, anthology, The Exum Cycle, soon from Necronomicon Press. Well, uh, the people, where he places Exum Priory uh, is not where Simric was spoken. It would have been Gaelic. I think I may have that reversed, but it doesn't really matter for our purposes. Howard was uh, very conversant with all sorts of Celtic and other history. And he said, oh, I guess, Mr. Lovecraft, I, I guess this means you are an adherent of the theory that the people in that area 
actually did speak Cymric, though it's usually thought, and I think, uh, that they spoke Gaelic. Uh, why do you think that? And Lovecraft wrote back and said, I didn't even know. I uh, just, you know, crabbed it from this, this story. Well, Howard was a rough and tumble guy. He was a beer drinker, an amateur boxer, uh, and uh, he... Uh, was sort of a townie hanging around with other townies in depression. Well, no, in the oil boom era of Eastern Texas. And he met various roustabouts and rough characters who sort of inspired his Conan character. Well, Lovecraft, as you say, couldn't have been more different. He's a genteel, scholarly uh, character, not exactly a recluse, but he liked his privacy. But they did have... Uh, questions and issues and subjects in common. So in their voluminous correspondence, oh, uh, Lovecraft is a bit older too, uh, they discussed current politics, uh, philosophy, religion, uh, history, and, and Howard showed how much he knew about all this stuff. And Lovecraft respected him and didn't dismiss him as some sort of a hick and seemed to be more fascinated that he was so different. And he said, after Howard had uh, killed himself, he said, uh, the secret of what made Howard's story so effective is that he himself was was in all of them. And, uh, and of course, uh, Howard uh, worshipped the ground Lovecraft walked on. He was a friend, but also admired him greatly, much like Robert Block and so forth. And um, uh, so there's a... Uh, Oh, there's a there was a big connection and a famous one. Can you imagine these two titans uh, being pals and then Smith as well? Sheesh. Okay, and another one from Magnus. He says you mentioned once that even though S. T. Joshi and Lynn Carter were friendly, they were also kind of opposites. Can you elaborate a bit on this? I'm not looking for gossip, but you mentioned this in a way that made it seem like a well-known fact. I still know very little about the Lovecraftian world and have not read any of them yet, though I'm trying to get my hands on Joshi's biography of H.P. Uh, yeah, I know about this because... Lynn, S.T., and I were regular attendees of uh, the New Calum Club uh, in the, jeez, um, what was it, uh, I guess late 80s, early 90s, well, probably longer than that, actually, uh, the, the, the New Calum Club, which was uh, Peter Cannon, Mark Saracini, Chuck Hoffman, Stephen Germanowitz, um, ST that I mentioned him, uh, Steve Maraconda especially, we would get together uh, and uh, hit the bookstores in uh, in or near the village, um, the the Strand, Barnes and Noble sale annex and so forth. And after grazing among the volumes, we would retire to the Silver Spur, this incredibly great. Uh, Formica restaurant, a big one, with a, an ironic Western theme, though the, the owners and most of the staff were either Greeks or Central Americans. And uh, all I ever ate there was their incredibly huge and delicious hamburgers. And we would uh, sit around and shoot the breeze about publishing projects, writing projects, uh, trends in weird publishing and so forth. It was great. And after that, we would uh, take the subways over to Lynn Carter's apartment. And, uh, and, or sometimes we would simply uh, meet and go over there, skipping everything else. And uh, we would um, sit around in his apartment enjoying the incredible collection of weird artwork and paintings and uh, artifacts he had a collection of, of Gnostic magical gems. He had a collection of uh, uh, bizarre pornographic art by uh, Malin Smith. Uh, he, uh, not Malin Smith, uh, Malin or Malin Blaine. Uh, and, uh, and, of course, great uh, 
antique and other books, and we would shoot the breeze there. And St. Well, he used to call St. the Swami or Swami Chandraputra, as if you began Chandraputra with a T rather than a ch. Uh, and uh, I mean a T in front of the ch. And uh, he, St. seemed to take no offense at that. I'm sure he'd be trying to sue him these days. Um, not that St. embraces politically correct fascism, but that you know he wouldn't unlike someone in his position today. But any, anyway, uh, he um, he didn't admire Lynn. I'll say that and. I don't know that he had ever read any of his uh, any of Lynn's fiction, but he they were polite and friendly enough. Um, I don't know that he gave Lynn sufficient credit for being the first to point out in print that there was a big difference between the mythos as Lovecraft understood it and as Derleth understood it. And uh, he, I mean, in St. had scholarly resources available to him about Lovecraft's life and work that uh, Lynn simply could never have read, uh, and they weren't available when he was writing his book *Lovecraft: A Look Behind the Cthulhu Mythos*. And so he made some uh, mistakes and so forth. But St. didn't give him any trouble for that and and again very friendly but uh they're really different though though uh lynn was scholarly in his own way it was more informal uh than with st and uh uh so that i think they had different tastes within fantasy and horror and lovecraft but they they got along quite well as did the whole gang if you're thinking boy i envy that price unless he's making this stuff up uh, i am not and i know i was very very blessed oh frank long would come to the meetings sometimes which really gave him that uh imprimatur of the calum club i've been very very fortunate to have any contact with these greats and um uh, i'll just uh leave it at that but yeah they i treasured both as friends and loved the work although very different of, of both men well i've actually come to the bottom of the slime bucket so i'd be quite happy to do another lovecraft geek but it's up to you you gotta send me more uh, foul and blasphemous questions before i can do it so i hope you will and i am certainly hoping you have a happy chocolate candy filled halloween i know i'm going to and now i'm gonna go watch the devil rides out so see you soon if you so desire with the lucky land slots you can get lucky just about anywhere this is your captain speaking uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine but we're just gonna circle up here a while and uh, get lucky no, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.